Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's time to roll your sleeves up and get your hands dirty with Friends of the Earth. Dirt Radio. And uh, good morning. Welcome to Dirt Radio. We are Friends of the Earth, of course, sponsored by their, that very fine organization. You can check them out on foe.org.au. And, uh, of course, big thanks to Yarrabug, as usual. And don't forget, if you've been pledging for Radiothon, you can pay up right now. There's lots of donations uh Still, well, we're chasing them up from uh, Dirt Radio, but uh, I'm sure you got a little bit of time left. And don't forget tax-deductible status um, till the end of this financial year. And uh, so get your donations in and uh, support Community Radio and, of course, Dirt Radio as well. Now, keeping an eye on our food is a bi-national government agency which is called Food Standards Australia and New Zealand. Bit of a big mouthful, but its its acronym is FAZANS. Now, two reports commissioned by this agency on the safety of nanomaterials in food and food packaging have recently been made public. The food regulator, and that's Fazan's, says that these reports show that nanomaterials in food and food packaging is no big deal, and people should stop worrying about the health risks. Jeremy Tager is from FOE's Emerging Tech Project, and he's not convinced. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning, John. Well, what's the connection between nanomaterials and food and food packaging? Well, nanomaterials are increasingly being used in food for all sorts of really dubious reasons, and they kind of reflect uh, an industrial food system. So the primary ingredient that's used in food as a nano-additive is titanium dioxide. That's used to make foods whiter and brighter, so it's used in chewing gums and mints and things like that. Um, you get nanosilica, which is to allow processed foods to pour more easily so they don't clump up. And then the final one that's really heavily used is nanosilver, which is used as an antimicrobial. So it's intended to um, protect the processed foods or foods that can go off from going off. And all of those foods are ones being consumed by humans with very little knowledge about how what kind of effect they have, except that we know that nano-ingredients behave differently from particles of the same material at a larger size. And uh, these reports that have just come out, there's two of them. What, why were they commissioned? What were they about and why were they commissioned? Well, it's kind of inter- it's an interesting story because initially Fazance was going to undertake um, a study of food packaging, and nano was going to be included in that. And they suddenly decided, well over a year ago now, that they weren't going to include nano after all because they didn't know enough about it. And for us, that was a really important sign of what's wrong with Fazant's, because instead of saying we don't know enough about it, we need to learn it, they said we don't know enough about it, so we're going to ignore it. About a year later, they commissioned a study both for the migration of nanomaterials and food packaging into food and into a review of the studies of nanomaterials in food and the health concerns that might arise from those. 
they were supposed to be done about a year ago and released for public comment, and that didn't happen. So uh, in May, we put out a Freedom of Information request, asked them to release those documents, and within six days, they were made public. And their claim that there were no health concerns identified in either of those reports is simply false. They're seriously misleading the public about what those reports actually say. Now, those reports have two primary conclusions. One is that there are clear and serious health concerns associated with nanoparticles in food particularly. More than more, there's more evidence of that than there is in relation to packaging. And secondly, that there is really insufficient data to reach any firm conclusion about whether these foods are safe. So contrary to what Fazant said, they can't conclude that these materials used in food are safe for human consumption. They can only say that we don't know that they cause harm because they don't have the evidence to tell them that with any certainty. And even worse, as Fazant hasn't bothered to look for it. So let, let me just go back over this, Jeremy. That What you're basically saying is that um, if I buy mints or uh, gum or things that are white or various other foodstuffs, uh, they may contain nanoparticles. Um, Fazant's, the regulator, commissioned a couple of reports. The reports have come out, and they're essentially misrepresenting what the reports have said? Yes, that's correct. The reports are actually quite a balanced view of what the evidence is showing about these nanomaterials in food and food packaging. In re- and in relation to both, there are concerns about the effect of nanosilica, nanotitanium dioxide, and nanosilver being used in food and consumed by children, adults, the elderly, the pregnant, with very little evidence that they're safe. And why, why, why would the uh, regulator, Fazans, why would they come out and, and make this kind of, I guess, a kind of equivocal sort of statement? Well, the only conclusion we can reach, and it's one that we keep seeing over and over again, is that Fazans operates in a pro-business, minimal regulation kind of environment. And in doing that, they sacrifice safety or precaution for a business-first, commercial-first, approach to food. And the problem is, is they say, well, if there's no evidence of harm, we're going to let it on the market, even if that means there's no evidence of anything, right? There's mm-hmm. so little data that they can't possibly conclude it's safe. Their argument has been over and over again, well, there's no evidence of harm. They take that as being the same as a finding of safety. And it is a ridiculous proposition, but it is one we've seen so many times from Fazans that we can't reach any other conclusion except that they have totally abandoned the notion of safety first when it comes to food, totally abandoned the notion of precaution when it comes to food, and totally capitulated to business when it comes to these materials in food products and in food packaging. This is not a new story. I've got to say that uh, I'm just reading some stuff about how much money the uh, mining industry and particularly the fossil fuel industry gives the political parties. Um, I think it's all part of the same, uh, let's call it the same paradigm. Um, no question. <laughs> the, um, the other thing I wanted to ask was um, if people were uh, concerned about this, and, and uh, you know, obviously it is a concern, how do you go about avoiding, um, you know, ingesting nanomaterials or, for example, uh, avoiding the packaging where your food is, is, is packaged with nanomaterials? Well, there are partial answers to those questions, John. Uh, In relation to nanotitanium dioxide and nanosilica, 
there's no requirement that nano is labeled anywhere in Australia, and there's no requirement that any nano product is assessed for safety. However, ingredients will carry either the they'll carry um, information or identification of the use of titanium dioxide, not in its nano form, but titanium dioxide and silica, which is E171 and E151. And our advice from the testing that we did a year ago was stay away from those ingredients and processed foods if you don't want nano. We don't know how to avoid nano silver in foods and in food packaging, and we don't know with food packaging how, many, how much of food packaging actually contains nano ingredients at this stage because we haven't done the testing and Fizance has refused to do so. Jeremy, is, is there uh, precedence elsewhere around the world where these products are you know, more, more evidently labeled and where testing has gone on? Yeah, there, there's, the European Union has very clear rules that nano ingredients in food require both labeling and a pre-market safety assessment, which doesn't happen here. In theory, the United States has similar rules because their Food and Drug Administration law says basically that you need to ensure the safety of food before you put it on the market. That is frequently ignored by the FDA, but we don't even have that kind of standard here. Um, Instead, we have an agency that has discretion and has really gone rogue in favor of business. So unfortunately, we have to, I I guess probably the best way of avoiding nano ingredients is eat fresh foods. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's hard to do that. I guess it depends on where the markets are and all that kind of stuff. But look, uh, just finally, um, in terms of people listening and, and else uh, other people just concerned about this kind of stuff, where can we get more information? I've, the best place is actually the FOA website. We're, probably, we're the only organization working in Australia on nanomaterials and food. And so if you go to Emerging Tech, that's all one word, although a case, .fo.org.au, you can get lots of information on what's being done in food, how we're trying to get changes to the way Fizance does business, and um, some of the foods that we found through testing that contain nanomaterials that are best avoided. Look, it's been very interesting talking to you, and I think we'll follow up because a, a logical question, I guess, that we need to get talking about is where do you go next and how do you get Fizance to sort of respond to these kinds of concerns that you're you're putting forward to us? Uh, maybe we can chat a little bit later in the year and find out a bit more about what's happening. Absolutely, yeah. I think there's a lot going on. And, and post-election, I think we'll see a lot more movement on the pressure that we're trying to put on Fizance to change the way they do business. And certainly there's lots and lots of room for the public to get involved in that. Thanks very much, Jeremy. Thank you, John. And talking there with Jeremy Tager, he's with the Faux Emerging Tech Project, and he was talking about nanomaterials in food. Things like, don't buy it, folks, gum, minties, uh, all kinds of stuff. I suspect it might be in, even in my, my corn chips, my favorite corn chips. Am I going to have to give up corn chips? your support for a 3CR program during Radiothon? Well, you can call us on 9419 8377 or visit our website 3cr.org.au You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. 
or simply post your cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. And thank you for being part of 3CR's Radiothon. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Well, I'd say the wind isn't going to be that lonely in Victoria and uh, in the future. Lee Eubank is the coordinator for Friends of the Earth's Yes to Renewable campaign, and he's here to tell us why the wind isn't going to be lonely. Good morning, Lee. G'day, John. How are you this morning? Yeah, going good, thanks. It's a little bit bit miserable out there in Melbourne today, but um, made it here in one piece. Good. Let's start, Lee, with that important announcement from the Andrews government last week because it has to do with wind and renewables. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yep, sure. So um, after a a two-and-a-half-year community campaign, um, you know, coordinated by the Yes to Renewables project um, of Friends of the Earth, we've managed to get the Victorian government to set a renewable energy target for the state um, and in terms of the level of ambition and, and the type of impact that it's going to have on our energy mix, by 2020, Victoria will have doubled the amount of wind energy in the state, which is huge, and we will have tripled the amount of installed renewable energy by 2025. And, you know, not only is that good news for our climate, um, given that it will cut emissions in the electricity sector by 18 million tonnes a year, um, about 12.3% less emissions by 2034, but it's going to create 10,000 jobs and it represents a $2.5 billion investment opportunity. Lee, from your point of view, you've been working on the campaign as you sit, and I know you've been working very long and hard for at least two years, more than two years. Yep. These goals that you're talking about, are they... Are they adequate? Are, are they a start? How do, you, how do you sort of read them? Yeah, sure. Look, um, of course, from a climate campaigner's perspective, you know, I'm always fighting for maximum ambition. And, you know, I'd like to see the state um, hit 100% renewables as soon as possible. But, you know, what the government has put on the table is very adequate. Um, it is a leadership position. Um, you know, this is a, a foundation stone, if you will. 
and it's going to put us on the pathway to get to 100%. And another way of thinking about it is, you know, by 2025, Victoria will have more installed renewable energy than any other state in the country. So, you know, this initiative of the Daniel Andrews government is, you know, it's putting us, it's going to catapult us to the front of the pack when it comes to renewables. And uh, just in terms of things that are practical on the ground kinds of flow-ons in terms of, I hate to use the expression, jobs and growth, mm-hmm. but what, what, what's your anticipated uh, scenario? Yeah, sure. No, that's a really good question. Um, you know, as I said, this initiative is expected to create 10,000 jobs. So that's, you know, 10,000 people that have a stake in action on climate change, 10,000 people that are now going to be a part of that story of acting to cut carbon. Um, you know, if you look down to the, the west of the state in Portland, you know, this is a town that's been struggling with, um, you know, manufacturing on the decline. Um, all of a sudden, they're going to have about 433 wind turbine towers to manufacture over the next four years. That's a huge economic opportunity for them, and that, that will really revive the town. And, you know, over the next 10 years... Um, you know, we're going to be getting to 40% renewables, but that means there's still the other 60% to come. So, you know, we're, we're trying to, um, to you know, inject, uh, you know, a lot of investment and life into the renewable sector. And we know that, you know, by 2025, it's only partially completed. Now, look, one of the sticking points, and I, I may have got this wrong, but I just wanted to throw this out to you. There's not at the moment. There's not bipartisan support in Parliament for this. Is mm. is there something that Yes to Renewables is going to be doing in terms of getting the state opposition on board with this as well? Yeah, sure. Um, look, we have engaged very constructively with the opposition. Um, you know, I've briefed the Liberal Party room. Um, we had the Shadow Renewable Energy Minister David Southwick um, speak at our rally on the steps of Parliament in February this year. And you know, I'd I'd really, I'd really like to see um, the opposition, you know, embrace um, renewable energy. It is the future of our energy system. It's good for jobs. It's good for the economy, and it's good for our climate. Um, and you can actually be a liberal and a supporter of renewables. You know, one only has to look at John Hewson, the former mm-hmm. leader of the National Liberal Party. You know, he's a big backer of renewables. He's investing in large scale solar now. And another um, unlikely uh, liberal champion of renewables is the former Senator Peter Ray. And Peter Ray is actually the, um, the president of the World Wind Energy Association. And he is, um, he's on the REN21 uh, Renewable Energy Alliance globally. And, you know, once again, a big backer of renewables and a liberal. And, you know, I hope that the opposition leader, Matthew Guy, can connect with those fellas, have a good mm-hmm. yarn about it and... You know, I don't see any reason why liberals aren't backing this. I like the way you put it. You can be a liberal and support renewable energy. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, liberals, I'm sure they would support smartphones and laptop computers and these other advanced technologies, and renewable renewables is the next wave. Now, look, this is a really difficult issue, and I'm sure you've thought a lot about this. Connecting renewable, as you said earlier, um, Renewables is definitely connected with climate change, and that climate change is connected with burning coal. Mm. Now, in Victoria, we've got a big problem, which is to reduce emissions because a lot of our electricity comes from burning coal in the Latrobe Valley. And the people in the Latrobe Valley, 
my understanding, is that they're extremely concerned about the transition to renewables. There's going mm. to be loss of jobs. The whole communities are going to be destabilized. How has Yes to Renewables mm. been thinking about this? Because I, I know there's been some initiatives that are being yep. talked about. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, yes to Renewables were a big supporter of the local group um, in the valley called Voices of the Valley. Uh, Wendy Farmer is a is a local champion of the community down there, and what's you know high high on their agenda is the need to have a good transition plan for coal workers and coal communities, and we wholeheartedly support that. Um, you know we would love to see some some wind energy down there, some solar. I think the big opportunity for the valley um, though is going to be energy storage. And that's something that's actually resonating with the community down there. Could they be, uh, what you know, over the next 10 years transformed into a hub for, you know, energy storage through batteries or even pumped hydro? You know, that would allow them to utilise the power infrastructure that's there, but in a new way, in a way that actually helps us tackle climate. Very interesting. And uh, just to follow up, uh, as I understand, they're trying to set up uh, innovative, an innovation center down there to precisely talk mm. about the kinds of things you're, you're, you're suggesting. Yeah, that's right. And look, I, this, is a big, this is a big question, but uh, you know, we're in a campaign mode right now. There's an election coming up. The big issue from my way of thinking is that governments and business at national levels – in Australia and elsewhere, are really dragging their feet on renewables. It seems to me that the initiatives aren't mm. really coming from the top down, but they're coming from the bottom up. Yep. And that um, cities, communities, even whole mm. states like Victoria, working autonomously and independently of government and business. Is that how you see, I suppose, the campaigns that you've been involved in or yep. the way things are developing? Yeah, sure. You know... If you, I, I st- through all of the work I've done out in community, I came across this great story. It's the town of Yakandanda, up in northeast Victoria. It's a town of six hundred people, and they um, they declared their own renewable energy target, the YRET, um, and they're aiming to be a hundred percent renewable by twenty twenty two. And then there was another town, Newstead, with the same same pledge. You know, Hepburn already has a community wind farm. There's community solar going on in Woodend. So the community is out in front of the, of government on this, especially the federal government. You know, we are seeing a lot of leadership from the states, um, the ACT with their 100% renewable commitment by 2020, South Australia, Queensland, and now Victoria. The real laggard here is the federal coalition government. You know, the likes of... Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and Environment Minister Greg Hunt, they've got a lot of work to do. Um, Mm. They are simply being left behind by the community and by state governments. Well, hopefully the communities will take the lead on this. And as you've said, it's uh, these are amazing stories that you're telling mm. us today. So, look, we'll keep in touch. We'll definitely keep in touch with you, Lee. And uh, still got lots of work to do, even though the announcement was made last week. Mm. Lots of stuff still to do. Thanks so much for coming in and uh, charging through the rain, getting on the <laughs> tram and all that. So we'll speak to you soon. Thanks, John. Okay. And uh, that's Lee Eubank. He's the campaign coordinator for Yes to Renewables. And we'll put their contact details on the website. Yes to Renewables.org is where you can find the information. We are Dirt Radio.